Welcome to the Radical Global Marketing Podcast. In each episode, we go deep with the world's leading international marketers and discuss the ideas and processes that make their global marketing strategies a success. Let's get radical. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Radical Global Marketing Podcast. I'm Stephen, one of your co-hosts, and today's episode is a very special one indeed. I'm joined today by not one, but two marketing leaders, academics, authors, podcasters, and in my opinion, absolute legends of the marketing industry from the APAC region. I'm hugely delighted to be joined by Bessie Lee and Peter Bomber. Bessie is currently the CEO and founder of Within Link, a China-based startup incubator and early-stage venture fund focused on Chinese digital and marketing technology. She's had several prominent leadership roles, including CEO of Mindshare and Greater China CEO at WPP. She's also the co-founder of the Mobile Marketing Association in China. Peter is a serial entrepreneur, business advisor, investor, writer, and China hand, which began with his leadership role as part of the Diageo team and their China relaunch. He launched his first China startup in 2007, a hugely successful Chinese language radio broadcaster covering 14 provinces and has since gone on to launch a string of China-based businesses in addition to helping global brands into market. I'll let Peter and Bessie talk about that much better than I can in just a moment and I'm particularly interested to hear about their new book, China Inside Out, China's Innovators in Their Own Words, which is going to form a lot of what we're about to discuss. But first, as ever, a quick word from our sponsor. The Radical Global Marketing Podcast is produced in association with Brandigo China. Brandigo's team of local and international marketing talent has been helping multinational brands achieve marketing success in China for almost two decades. This is founded on their unique, radically relevant China marketing methodology built on insights, creativity, and flawless execution across multiple China marketing channels. To find out more about Brandigo China and how they can help your brand meet your China business objectives, visit brandigochina.com or reach out to the team via social media and we'll put all the links and contacts in the show notes. Peter, Bessie, thank you so much for coming in. I was so excited when you said you would do this for us. So thank, thank you, thank you very much. Thank Great you so much for having us. Yeah. So what I'd like to start off with is just a little overview of the journey to how we got here, mm -hmm. how we're sort of sitting here today with a fantastic book that we put out. Bessie, perhaps if I can start with you, can you just give us a little insight into your journey as a marketing professional? Yeah, I was in WPP altogether 27 years, wow. from 1990 to 2017. First 12 in Taiwan and 15 in mainland China. Then I left WPP in 2017 to start my own little marketing technology startup, investment and incubator firm within Link. Because I, I thought that technology, there's so much that technology can do to sort of empower the changes in the marketing industry. But I thought getting much closer to the younger generation, to the much closer to the startup founders probably is be more possible to make that happen mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of staying in a big group. So that's what I've done. And then in 2019, I started my own podcast. The, the, re the real reason was not really because I wanted to start a podcast because I started paying attention to the smart assistant, voice mm -hmm. assistant, because I've been going to um, the consumer electric sh electronic show in Las Vegas since 2016. So I've noticed the, the, the growth and development of voice assistants. So I was like, wow, voice. This generation of marketers probably had no experience mm -hmm. with voice marketing. So I started paying attention. Then I got invited to podcasts. I think you're one of them. So I was so inspired by the way that you did podcasts. I was like, maybe I should do my own podcast. So I'm trying to understand 
what voice means now, you know, with all the technology. Yeah. So that's how I started. And it's still going. Um, my, my podcast is in Chinese. It's called Bei Wang Lu. I've got close to 280,000 subscribers now in one of the bigger uh, platform in China. So yeah, very excited. <laughs> well, like I said, we'll make sure to put links to all of that when Thank we get you. to the show notes. Thank Peter, you. over to you. Well, look, I mean, I think you summarized my career pretty neatly i'm not sure i want to damage myself by by undermining that so i i People say i should work in marketing <laughs> but so thank you for that indeed thank you but what i'll do instead is just say I've, I've been in china for very nearly 20 years and actually from really very early on the place fascinated me so most of the last 20 years for me have been sent spent trying to figure out this extraordinary conundrum and uh in recent years trying to write about it. And in fact, I've been trying to write my first China book for about five years. <laughs> and of course, as soon as you get into doing that, you have to do a lot of reading. And as soon as you start reading seriously about China, you realize not only is the place geographically huge, yeah. but it's huge in terms of time span. And it really begins to spin on you. And what seemed like a fairly straightforward kind of uh, set of points you wanted to make in a book, suddenly you find yourself all at sea. So I spent about five years grappling with how to put some shape into that. And then um, following some really good conversations with Bessie, we realized that we perhaps had an opportunity to bring our two projects together in a way that was going to do that and to hopefully the benefit of both of them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We're going to come on to the book in just a second because I, I've read it and there's a few, well, lots of things that jump out for me, but I've got a couple of questions about specific chapters that I'm going to get into with you guys, seeing as I've got you with me. And Bessie, just thinking about the current business then within Link, what's I know you're the CEO, but how does that pan out on a day-to-day -day basis? What's your day-to-day -day role in the organization? I actually have a, have, have another role. <laughs> I'm multi-task, multi multi-roles multi at the moment. Because my daytime job, my full-time job, I'm a Greater China CEO of a commercial real estate advisory firm. Oh, excellent. So that's my daytime job. I didn't get that on your LinkedIn. <laughs> all in this way. Yeah, yeah but, uh, because, uh, you know, being a big corporate... I'm covering myself now. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I did that on purpose. So okay. if you go to my LinkedIn, you probably don't see that as a, as a first. <laughs> even though it's my. No, it's okay. I'm, I didn't mention the name. <laughs> because I, I, I think that this this big corporate job is it's interesting. It's a very left field for me. I mean, from, from a marketing background, going into commercial real estate. But there's so much in common. They're an advisory firm. They provide services to clients. They're a professional service provider. You know, la la la. So my daytime job is to run that operation, Greater China. So all the within link incubation, we have stopped making investment already. So okay. because we finish off... Uh, um, uh, fund one yeah. so we're just waiting for the right time to exit the portfolio companies but we're doing some of the consultancy works for international groups about getting their China strategy right so that that business is still going on but I handed the day-to-day the -day operation to my two uh, uh, partners so I'm I'm supporting them during my lunchtime, my <laughs> <laughs> breakfast times, my uh, after work time. And I still have my podcast to do, yeah. right? So I do a lot of the recording and uh, also lunchtime, uh, uh, nighttime, and also weekend. That's how I juggle <laughs> between all these uh, different you don't roles. Like sleep. That is <laughs> no. <that> one. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you've both had a fantastic career so far today. I'd, I'd love to find out just a little bit about what influences you, if you like, or what have been particular moments or or events or, or people that you've come across in the journey that have 
sort of influenced or inspired Peter back to start? Well, yeah, I mean, I already mentioned the, the fascination of China itself, yeah. but something else for me really startlingly interesting happened when I left Diageo because I obviously started a series of my own businesses. By and large, they went pretty well, which was um, probably as much about luck as it was judgment. But it, it really did start me thinking because the biggest one of those businesses, which is the radio broadcast you mentioned, had 50 people at its peak, which is by most accounts fairly small. And it really had a huge influence on me because I began to see that small is genuinely beautiful when it comes to business. You have a team of 50 people. Actually, every single one of those people can be top 1% in terms of talent, ability, intellect. And you can create the kind of environment in which they're hugely fired up and excited by what you're doing, which makes it even more effective and tremendously good fun. And it really started me thinking a lot about business and what's right with it, what's wrong with it, and where it's likely to go. And, you know, at the same time as that, you have this fantastic democratizing effect of digital and the internet. So I started getting interested in some of these craft gins that were being made. And, you know, with a relatively small team, you can have a fantastically successful business that makes 10 or 15 people very wealthy, but never needs to go anywhere near um, a major corporate or a major international distribution network. So there's a sense of doing something really special that's really worth doing and incredibly nourishing. And funnily enough, in quite a lot of industries now, I think those are the businesses that are really showing the vibrancy, the vitality and the growth. Yeah. And you wonder where this is all going to lead. It's quite an interesting area to get into, I think. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Let's see if I could ask you the same question. Sure. I'm a Taiwanese and I've been living in China for the tw last 21 years. I just thought that there's so much going on in this country. The country itself is growing, is advancing, right? And then it's highly digitized a nation as well. So there's just so much going on, uh, whether it's digital uh, digitization or innovation or, you know, government doing city planning, urban planning, what have you. I just thought that if you just stay in one place... You're just missing out so much fun taking part of all these changes that this country is going through. Sure. So that's why I, well, I left WPP in 20, 2017 to start my own little company. Don't start your own company if you're not prepared, right? <laughs> well, no, I've, got to, I've got to challenge that. Whatever you do, don't be prepared because if you are, you'll never do it. Okay. So this feels like part two of the podcast. So we, will, we will do the part two, but... Anyway, so, you know, my, my little startup, being a startup founder, and I help other startups, and my podcast, it's just never, there was never a dull moment in China, and it just made my 21 years so much more interesting. So maybe you can say that it's fear of missing out. <laughs> but when this country is growing, and it's advancing, by just taking part yeah. of that whole movement... You get so much uh, satisfaction and gratification. So that's what I'm... I don't want to sort of stay in one place or stay with one thing. But I, So I'm always trying but failing as well, but fail quickly. And so <laughs> learn from the failure and then move yeah. on to the next thing. Fantastic. Thank you both for you. Okay. Now, as I said right at the top of the show, I really want to talk about the book. Um, China Inside Out, China's Innovators in Their Own Words. I think... To, to get into that, though, we need to just take a step back first. As Am I right in thinking the book was originally inspired by the podcast series? Yeah. So, Bessie, could you tell us a little bit more about how the podcast 
came around. I know you mentioned where the idea came from, but how did the themes and the format, mm. how's that, what's that journey look yeah. like? Well, I started my podcast, uh, the Chinese name is Bei Wang Lu. I started the podcast in 2019. Of course, it's in Chinese. And the theme is, uh, was, uh, at the very beginning was marketing and advertising. But the more we did, the more content we did, we, I've noticed that I've expanded that discussions and dialogues it's, it's a sort of a two people or three people mm-hmm. dialogue kind of format so the more i've done the more i was able to get people to talk about like business models the you know the digital innovation the technology adoptions failure you know so on and so forth transformation and disruption mm-hmm. so now Beiwang Lu is is not just an advertising and marketing sort of vertical but it's it's everything about business it's everything about innovation but because it's in Chinese so I've got friends outside of China or multinational uh, companies you know their headquarters sits outside of China friends will come to me and said do you have any English transcript or do you have Chinese trans- transcript I can somehow translate it into English and send it to my boss because there are things that a lot of the Especially the younger Chinese brands are doing. It's, it's very unconventional compared yeah. to the old world of marketing, you know, so on and so forth. So they all want to know what these people talked about. Now, a lot of the founders or, you know, my guests that come onto my show, they're not like big platform CEOs. Mm-hmm. They're not Alibaba or Tencent. And therefore, the things that they're, they're doing, whether it's success or failure, don't normally get picked up by Western media, but there's so, I, I continue to be fascinated by what they're doing. So I was like, well, maybe I can handpick a few mm-hmm. episodes, translate them into English, and then publish a book. I was very naive of it. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, okay, I can just do that. But until I show it to Peter, he's like, uh, this is unreadable. But <laughs> the content is interesting. So that's how Peter helped rewrite the whole uh-huh. thing, make it a more readable yeah. book. So that's how that's how we started yeah, in the no, background. I'd like to expand on that then, mm. because I was going to turn to you, Peter, with the mm. next question, and, and Bessie's linked us really nice into it, because the book is so much more than just the transcripts, mm. which I found the transcripts interesting enough, but then I'm in the region, mm. I'm a geek. It just <laughs> fascinates me. I think the brands that you chose to, to, to include in the book are spot on because they're so varied mm. and so many different experiences. But the book is just so much more mm-hmm. than that. So mm-hmm. Peter, I guess, where did the idea come from then? How did you expand on what was already good content? Well, as, as so often is the case, there were several strands that came sure. together at the same time. So Bessie and I have known each other for over 20 years. I was her client at Diageo um, when she was running Mindshare. And so I've always had a pretty close understanding of what Bessie is doing. As I mentioned earlier, I've been struggling with this sprawling book, um, and there are a number of themes that I wanted to, to, to pursue. And as I read these slightly unwieldy transcripts, I could see... Food of Chinglish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, which is charming, actually. But I, I, I could see that many of the things I was interested in were there. And this is, for example, people doing really innovative things, people not feeling in any way constrained, people experimenting at huge pace with tremendously finely honed instincts so that nothing ever really seems to go horribly wrong for them. And uh, I just felt a real affinity with the people who were talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, It made me think so much of my own startups 
here and, and in different ways of, of the corporate experience here too. And what it did for me above all else was it allowed me to make some of the points that I'd been wanting to make, but to actually demonstrate um, almost, I hesitate to say case study, yeah. but to demonstrate based on real life that it's not just the noodling of some lunatic who's sitting in an ivory tower somewhere <laughs> and wants to say something different about China. That just kind of came together quite naturally, didn't it? I mean, yeah. the first thing we did was uh, I, I had a, a go at editing the transcripts and there were a few little errors that made it indecipherable. So those had to be fixed. But by and large, we tried to leave them untouched mm-hmm. because they're authentic yeah. in the way that they are. And then I was able on reading them to use them as a framework uh, on which to hang some points that I think are important about China, Chinese culture, the differences between Western and Chinese ways of thinking, yeah. and particularly the differences in how they manifest themselves in a business environment. So it was a bit of a happy accident. It came together beautifully. Obviously, we had no clue what we were doing. So there was a huge learning process. And hopefully the second one will run a bit more smoothly when we get to it. And, you know, it's the first book um, that, that either of us have been involved in. So I'm sure it has all sorts of um, uh, rookie errors and so on. But we felt we had something mm-hmm. and, and that's how it happened. And well, also both of us are such makers, if you like, the yeah. Chris Anderson uh, terminology. So instead of going to any publishing company, probably no one will be bothered because we're, we're so unknown. Right? <laughs> so instead of doing that route, we've just chose the self-publishing route. So uh, we can come on to that. It's it's a really really interesting collaboration between men and machine. Yeah, <laughs> but that's true. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. I think you use the word authentic, and I think that's what absolutely jumps out. And I think maybe the style that you guys have collaborated to put it together adds to that authenticity. Mm. As Thank well. you. Mm. Thank you. If it's okay, I'd like to just dive into a couple of the specific sections of the book. I don't want to give too much away because I know people are going to read it and, and digest it and enjoy it as much as I have. But there were certain things that jumped out at me and I'd love while I've got the authors here to just dive into mm, those things in a little bit more detail. So um, there's there's one of the podcasts and um, one of the transcripts you're speaking with um, Wu Xiaobo mm-hmm. and I found that one really interesting. Mm. The thing that stood out for me about that and, and Peter, you summarised this as well in, in the in the lead into the actual transcript, but it, it's talking very much about the focuses on digitization. But he shares so many fascinating insights into just Chinese business characteristics, yes. Chinese business culture as a whole, as well, which is just really much part of that story, too. Is that a fair reflection of what came out from you guys in that podcast as well? You'd agree with that? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I mean, maybe you you, you know him far better so than I do. You the business was to begin with and right so the actually he's he's a journalist he's a background but very well-known journalist and then he from journalist turned into a long-term sort of chinese economy observer if you like so every year what he will be doing is to go and visit at least 50 enterprises throughout china he will talk to the founders he will actually go to a site visit so if this is the manufacturer he will actually go and check out the factories and he will do that year after year year after year so he's been tracking quite a lot about you know what the chinese companies are doing especially when it comes to digitization mm-hmm. so that's why he can give so many great examples yeah. so i just thought that by talking to him he can give you great examples of big corporates what big corporates are doing like when he talked about you know the cranes are you that people are using the virtual constructions in china a, a lot of them are iot right internet of things yeah. meaning they're they all are connected so yeah. therefore 
the government and the back end can can tell how many cranes are in action. And that's how when when pandemic happened in Wuhan, they're able to mobilize the unused or idle cranes from all over China to Wuhan, build that temporary hospital yeah. within what two weeks. Yeah. Right. So that's an example that he will be able to use. But he can also tell you a little fruit kiosk or little uh, sellers around the corner of his home in Hangzhou, how he is a little merchant also use digitization yeah. to do CRM, to do customer loyalty programs. So I think that the spectrum of his his insights is so diverse, but 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 so of so much value. Sure. So uh, you know that that's that's his background, and then that's how he he became so well respected uh, in in China. I agree with that entirely. Mm. But uh, for me, the thing that was most interesting this is a very personal view. He spends so, he's clearly thought so deeply about the nature of Chinese entrepreneurialism, yeah. and that's a subject that really deeply interests me as well. Yeah. And he's he offers some theories about it, and I, I think those theories are very interesting. I actually don't think they fully explain. And so, you know, he, 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 he majors on the Chinese love of gambling, which is almost in danger of being a bit of a cliche. But actually, I think most people who've lived here w- would agree that it's a, a distinct trait of the culture. And he suggests that that lends itself to people who are just naturally in tune with the, the, the daily ebb and flow of, of, of a startup business. But I think it actually goes deeper. I think it goes right back into Chinese history and the difficulties that once upon a time so many people here faced on a daily basis. Difficulties of the sort that your average Westerner has never had to confront or not since medieval times. And the innate quickness and sharpness and almost instinctive ability to see what's going to work out and what isn't. For me, that's all fascinating. It's one of my major interests. It's it's, it's what uh, the book I'm currently writing is focusing on majorly. And he's really interested in that and very insightful about it and talks about it a lot. So for me, that's what makes it Mm, perhaps the most interesting yeah. of all the chapters there. Well, it was that, I guess, almost dichotomy for me that I loved as well. It's, as you said, he's got all of this really interesting insight from business of all different types of scales, but links it back to that. Mm. And I think that's a really good kind of overall summary mm. of the book mm. as well. Oh, mm. thank you. Um, what are the other ones then? Obviously, so I'm someone who, who works fairly frequently with foreign brands in China. So I also found the discussions with with Chen Yaping really interesting as well. Perhaps more on a, a day-to-day operational or even marketing execution mm-hmm. level than, than some of the other chapters. But I think that's a really, some really valuable insight. To yeah, I agree. And it, I think it was important that we had a chapter yeah. that was a bit more operational, if yeah. you like. Um, yeah. But, but Chen Yaping's story is also like a transformation yes. of a traditional agency professional. Yeah turn into um, everything you have to do. Uh, you know, you own the brand, you, you have to make the brand happen. You have to make make it a successful. Yeah. So it's no longer just, I'm a third party. I'm mm-hmm. just providing service to you. So for the benefit of the readers and listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, the, the business that she's involved in is a, it's an, it's an international mother and baby mm-hmm. care brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think some of her learnings on KOL marketing, for example, mm. were, were really interesting. But again, going back to what we discussed in the first, the last section of our conversation and reflecting on the book, it got to that 
real nice balance between mm-hmm. here's the operational side, mm. but she talks a lot about trust yeah. in what she's discussing as well, and that links back to some of the concepts that you were mm-hmm. talking about as well. Yeah, I agree. Is that a fair understanding? Yes. Is that chapter you would say? As I well? think it is, and I think there's another big theme, and perhaps we'll get into the the KOL and the trust thing in a little bit later in the conversation. But there's another big theme that comes through for me. One of the things that's been a big factor in my China life is getting involved with brands trying to launch here who had an innate head start, to be blunt. Either there was a huge issue of trust required. So I'm thinking, you know, particularly infant type products, health related products. And this is changing by the day, but you know, there was a prolonged period where in China, there was a certain amount of discomfort with more locally sourced products. Mm -hmm. And there are still in China today, gaps, if you like, in all sorts of sectors, which are enormous opportunities from people from overseas, for people from overseas, with the right kind of brand and the right kind of story to tell. And I think it's it's generally thought that all of those low-hanging fruit opportunities in China are long gone. Well, they're not. And for me, I think this is a lovely example of that kind of business yeah. doing really well here. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. What we find, if I can just chip in, we work with several brands like that. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge that we have when they come to us or whoever has been advising them is they want to flood to the e-commerce yeah. platform. And my argument is always, you can do that, but you're not going to make anything because you've got no brand. Yeah. So you have to do the brand work first, which is why the stuff about the KOL mm-hmm. I found it's really quite right, isn't it? And it, I think I, I get into that in the book, actually. It's, it's you know, it, I used to deal with a lot of brands who wanted to get in and they were absolutely convinced that they had to be on Taobao, Timor, <laughs> wherever. And when you ask them why, they'd say, well, because there are hundreds of thousands of consumers just waiting to buy. And of course, that's true. But there are also hundreds of thousands of brands trying to sell. And the whole thing, it's it's changing a little, has been changing, will continue to change in typical Chinese fashion. But until quite recently, it was a huge competition for who could spend the most money on quite transactional marketing techniques. Mm. So unless you paid to get the right position in the search results, you weren't going to get anywhere. And so what we found was we had a lot of unhappy brands coming to us and saying, we're doing everything, we're doing everything we're being told to on these platforms and we are selling, but we're we're just breaking even. And every time we go to the platform to say, you know, what can we do about this? The platform says, guess what? Spend more on marketing. Um, Yeah, it's now a very costly (laughs) exercise. I think because most of the platforms have their own ecosystem well, of course. as well, and they want to tie you in. Well, of to- course. And they're retailers. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, why, why on earth? Why on earth should you accept? What they have is an absolutely brilliant business model, but it's designed for their benefit, much more than the individual or any individual brand you may be trying to sell through them. So, you know, back to your point, unless you have some other established reason for people to prefer you, in which case they'll come and find you, wherever the hell you may be in the search results you're going to struggle. And it's almost, I would say at least 80, maybe more percent of the foreign brands in China that I've worked with in the last 10 years, it's the same issue every time. Mm -hmm. And yet it's incredibly difficult to steer them away from that. And I think it's something to do with the old billions argument. There are billions of consumers here. If you just take 1% and imagine (laughs) that, and and of course it's all very appealing and romantic and lovely, but it's a bit fatuous um, because it's a lovely idea, but how do you actually do it? Well, it, it, you, you say that this is our market of billions, but then you've got to factor things like geography mm. and disposable yes. income. Indeed. And where your brand speaks to certain 
values and how your marketing is going to seek to change the behavior and also communicate to those values. That's quite And you're narrowing and narrowing the beginning of your funnel before you even get into that. That's quite right, isn't it? it Which which brings choices as well the Chinese consumers have. Huge choice. You're right. Mm -hmm. And this brings you back a little bit to that, you know, careful selection of what kind of brand is going to be a China success story. You know, the reality is not very many Western businesses have succeeded here ever. Those that have have been around for an awfully long time and went through some pretty tough times in order to kind of learn the ropes. So it's, it's, it, 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 there's nothing magical about it. It can all be worked out, but you actually need to start from a position of slightly better insight. Yeah. And in my experience, an awful lot of brands don't do that. Yeah. And, and bringing it back to what Chen Yaping did with our business, that insight was critical in terms of identifying the right channels, the right of using those channels. Building that brand yeah. to a certain extent first yeah. as well. So I found that one fascinating. Yeah. Well, my my favorite chapter of these is actually the the Nova Vision, the Wang Zhiming yeah. chapter. Uh, yeah. So Wang Zhiming is the founder and CEO. That was my next question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're way ahead of you. <laughs> So Nova Vision is a very traditional optical chain, right? So at the time of my podcast, uh, Jimmy, his English name. So Jimmy has 1,200 stores nationwide in China. So he, every year, used to, his marketing team used to spend big chunk of their marketing dollar hiring, you know, celebrities, come on, do the advertising, you know, spokesman and do an activation campaign. And a lot of fans will follow, you know, huge boosts of their awareness or, you know, the, the, the product news. But after the celebrity campaign finished, he asked his marketing team, what do we get out of this other than a short, very short boost of mm-hmm. this campaign, right? Did we get any, you know, name, nameless or data from these fans that follow their celebrity? None or very little. So he's, he's, he then started, or they have a very limited marketing budget. He's like, I can't spend all my money every year like this, having no assets left, right, with that money spent. So, so he started studying this retail, uh, like a Yelp equivalent platform in China called Mm -hmm. DMP, Mm -hmm. right? So he started studying the logic because there are AI, you know, push messages and processing. So he studied their uh, logic. He realized in order for any product news of his stores to be on the top of the page or having that top of of the search exposure, whoever posts those uh, news has to have the highest level in terms of the user level, right? Yeah. So he called his 1,200 store managers in and his corporate staff. He said, look, we need to make sure that all 2,000 of us post as many posts as possible, restaurants reviews, stores reviews, you know, product purchase reviews on this platform. So we keep upgrading our level. I'm level one. Maximum level is a level eight in on this platform. So let's keep upgrading us. So he said, for every level upgrade, I'm going to pay you this monetary, you know, prize uh, within. So in the end, he spent a fraction of that marketing dollar incentivizing his store manager, his corporate staff to upgrade. But once they upgrade, so, so, so many of them now become level seven. It's like a KOL on that, on that platform. So then they started posting news or, or you know, information about their new products, their uh, discount or their uh, uh, promotion campaign. Mm-hmm. Every post got the first top of the page. So he got so much exposure. So, so he drew traffic into his store. The reason why I love this chapter is because 
This is a very, very traditional retail business yeah. trying to survive in a huge country like this, right? There, I think a lot of these business challenges they face is universal. You have the same challenge in the US. But because this is his business, he's a founder. He's not a professional manager. He's like, oh, I can just, you know, say, sorry, can't do it, can't do much. So he actually devoted his time to find way out of this, you know, traditional battle that he's fighting. So I just thought that whole sort of survival, sense of survival, trying to find ways to, to turn his corporate around. So he's no longer just a retail business. He's like, the, the term that we, we use in China is called corporate MCN, mm-hmm. multi-channel network, because all the store managers in his companies are an influencer. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, it's a moment of genius and it's a moment of in tremendous free thinking and open-mindedness. Um, and, and funnily enough, lots of Westerners who work here tend to take the view that open-mindedness and free thinking isn't a particularly Chinese cultural characteristic. But I mean, patent nonsense, as, as this chapter really clearly demonstrates. But there's another aspect to that, which is the level of engagement and involvement that that gave to his team, which has been transformational for him, I believe. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and and uh, it's just a remarkable piece of clear-sightedness. Yeah. And that's why it's the opening chapter. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'd like to think, I mean, we did take some care to pick five chapters that we thought were all good. Um, hopefully there are no, there's no filler there. Um, <laughs> and there'll be a new book out in due course. So there are plenty more really superb oh, episodes. When yeah. we come to the end, we can do close what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> then just to sort of close things off nicely mm. around the discussion with the book. From an international brand perspective, I think China Inside Out is packed full of learnings, as I've said. Not just for the China market, but as you just alluded to in the last point there, Bessie, from a global perspective or a global lens as well. For a marketing leader or professional that's sort of gone through the book, I guess, what would be sort of next step, next steps for them in sort of broadening their awareness? Or how would you see it as a jumping off point? Where would you go next? Well, I, for me, this is a thing I've been thinking about for a long time, but these case studies really brought it home to me. It's the, it's the recognition of the way a Chinese team at its best, will work, which is actually very different to the way a Western team will work and not entirely comfortable for an awful lot of Western leaders and managers. It's this slightly anarchic, sort of inherently, um, sort of irrepressibly individualist ability to jump around and try different things and come up with new ideas. And the smart marketeer in China will not just accept that, but they'll embrace it um, and they will try to not interfere with it insofar as is absolutely possible. Um, I have a mantra here, it's not them, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet at the same time, in one of the other chapters, um, uh, Liu Xiaolu and uh, her lingerie brand, which is a remarkable success story. At the same time, she's taken what you might call a really traditional, classic, international strategic marketing and branding approach. Mm-hmm. And it's worked brilliantly in China. And a great course, product as well. A great product. But, you know, of course, that's part of the, the strategic yeah. thinking. You know, um, it was a, a, another moment of genius from a, a truly gifted entrepreneur, I think. But of course, 
in a way, what she's done there is itself a novelty in China um, to use international uh, modes of branding and, and brand strategy isn't normally what's done here. And actually, when you try and introduce it, you quite often run into a lot of resistance. That's a matter of understanding how to introduce it, I think. Mm-hmm. So it, it shows the diversity of the things that are possible here. But hopefully it gives a clue as to how you need to approach them in order to tap into that. That's really what we're trying to do with the book, I think, when you agree. Yeah. And, and like I said earlier, I think a lot of the business challenges Chinese companies face in China or any company facing China are universal. Yeah. I, I know, I know, Stephen, you work in China for so many years. I'm, I'm sure you heard people say, oh, China is different. China is different, right? I, I disagree with that. A lot of these challenges are the same, universal. However, the way that some of these uh, Chinese companies uh, you know, approach the problem and the solution they came up with, are probably they're not limited by the conventional yes, wisdom. that's exactly it. Because they don't have precedence in... in this is a, a relatively still young country. So even for that you know, old brand, old Chinese brand, they don't really have a lot of history or marketing history to go back to. Sure. So it actually gives the, 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 the people... I guess plenty of imagination. As long as you're brave enough to try new things and you're not afraid of fail, but you fail quickly and you stand up and then you just you move on right to the next thing. Then the consumers here are actually happy for you to test out new ideas with them. So in the book, all these five founders or entrepreneurials face a similar challenges, like the coffee chapter. Why do you try what do you do trying to sell coffee to a tea drinking nation? <laughs> lingerie, when you have you know Victoria's Secret, right? A local Chinese brand. How do you sell lingerie to a young generation who are so fascinated yeah. by all these lays and you know international brands? Yeah, and we, I mean, just sort of building on that point because I couldn't agree with you more. Then you couple that with this innate, instinctive ability to see whether it's going to work out or not. It's almost preternaturally fast, the speed with which Chinese teams can spot that. Mm. Put those two things together, it's a very powerful combination. It's something actually smart Western businesses might want to consider exporting out of China exactly. to some of their other operations. Yeah. I see, Peter, that's been fantastic. I would urge listeners to, to do pick up a copy of the book because I found it fascinating. As I have you both here... And it's not often I get this much marketing experience in, in one place. And I don't mean that to the disrespect. Calling it old, aren't you? Because <laughs> <laughs> we had some fantastic channel on the podcast already. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to waste the opportunity, though. Um, I've just had a fantastic week in Bangkok at the Amon Global Conference, meeting some great and collaborating with some really, really talented marketing and agency professionals. We spent a lot of time focusing on things like AI and, and Web 3.0 and, and working on how we can all get to grips with what feels like a real revved up period of evolution for the marketing industry in, in general. I'd just like to get a few ideas, a few comments where you guys see where we are at and what you think of the latest innovations or are we missing something? Is there something else that we should be spending our time on? Bessie, can I start with you? Sure. Well, um, earlier on in my in my introduction, I explained that I was in WPP for 27 years. Now, in those 27 years, I, I've heard a lot, a lot of talks about you know, transformation, mm-hmm. disruption, or what have you. But I haven't actually seen any solutions that actually have transformed the agency model completely. But I was very fascinated by AIGC or okay. generative AI. Yeah. And I've been do, using that as well. And I'm very excited. I think, I think this finally we have a solution that could help agency 
put that transformation from PowerPoint into a real action. Yeah. Because I, I've, I've seen uh, generative AI helping agency improve that efficiency significantly if they use it right. Yeah. And even uh, use uh, generative AI to, to, to check, for instance, uh, plagiarism, if, if you like. In the past, you can't, you really can't do it, right? Possibly. And if I relate to the, to, to our journey with this book, when we first had the transcript done, AIGC was not available yet. Yeah. So we have to hire translators to translate, to convert the audio file into a Chinese transcript and then translate that into English, right? The whole process took a long time. It's so much English. But, but this time around, also the whole journey with this book, I would say it's about a 30, 70 kind of machine and man collaboration. Why 30? Because the self-publishing platform, uh, Amazon, is a machine run, to be honest yes, with you. Right? Yes, I have to deal with machines so yes, much. But we, at the moment, I've already handpicked about six or seven chapters from my you know, new uh, podcast. We've used an AI, a generative AI solution in China to do a audio to, to, to text transcript in no time. So I've got a Chinese transcript or, you know, ready already within a matter of what, three days, I think. Yeah. And now I'm going to, well, men will have to do the fine tune. But then I will use ChatGPT to do the translation. Then I'll throw it at Peter to do the rewriting. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine our next book of this series could be a 50-50 or even 70-30 between machine and man That's collaboration. Maybe. And, you know, other things too. I mean, I had a lot of fun creating the cover with uh, Mid Journey. Mm. Um, not something I've ever done before, and, and no doubt it's laughably gauche and, and, and embarrassing, but it was great fun, and of course we'll get better at that. But I, the, the, the exact percentage doesn't matter, does it? I think, for me, the really exciting point there is that those technologies allow smaller, more nimble units to do extraordinary things that even just a couple of years ago they could not have yeah. done. And uh, I, I know so many businesses that are going to thrive on the back of that. I, I'm very loosely involved in an exciting whiskey startup in Edinburgh, uh, which is a, a, a whiskey uh, for blending into cocktails called We Smoky. Um, urge the listeners to take a look at it because it's something a bit special. But it's a very small team. They're having phenomenal success, and it's really on the strength of their personalities and character. They do these extraordinary, very entertaining events and pieces of short content. And they are now finding ways to do that at scale by using um, AI and other new technologies to allow them to push it far further. And it's building their brand personality. So we're not neglecting that uniqueness, that, that specialness that, that allows them to stand out, but they're facilitating all of their work with technology. It's very exciting, yeah. I think. What are the challenges that came up? I think maybe I'm looking at it from an agency perspective was though some of the, the agencies that we spoke to and that we were hanging out with last week one of their concerns is the clients now that the agency's ability to grips with this generative content how does that reflect on the agency pricing model because if we're saying we're using this great tool to create content quicker and more sort of more efficient well then the pushback from the clients what is the price to set but steve and i I don't know. You must have been playing around with these generative yeah. AI solution a lot more than I have. My 27 years experiencing uh, experiencing WPP, I was a media planner. I was never able to create creative because I was not a creative. But I was able to do mid journey to create sort of poster for my 
poster for my podcast, right? However, when I was using it, I realized because I never had any solid creative experience, the prompts I put in were garbage. Yeah. Yeah. So garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that prompt, it actually takes years for someone who is so experienced and then you're able to articulate well to tell AI what is it that you're looking for. Yeah. So it's not a just a college fresh grad can just sit in front of mid-journey and give that he can or she can get prompt, but it's not going to generate a kind of creative. It, it's true. And the agency has a great advantage there because the small business can also gain that experience and expertise, but only on the one area. Yeah. The agency is doing it across multiple different brands and companies. And so inevitably, they're going to have a much deeper understanding of how you queue up the prompts. Yeah. And I know from my own limited experience, it's anything but straightforward. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if in... 12 months time we've got creative director head of content prompt engineer yeah exactly. I, I imagine that's right doing the job. Yeah. there's already a already a, a role called chief prompt officer yeah really <laughs> there you go yeah. there was um, chief here one of these I'm going to Star Wars I'm going to there was uh, one of the guests around the podcast a couple of episodes ago uh, a lady incredibly talented called Doris Gong and she's Head of brand communications and marketing China and Asia for Volvo construction companies. Mm. And I asked her the same question. And she kind of flipped the question back to me. Um, and she sort of said she was working with an agency in a different part of Asia, it wasn't within China. And they keep or they repeatedly were showing her, look at this cool tool we've been using to do this great project. Look at this cool tool. Look at this shiny thing. We're completely up to speed with all of this. We're now using this to create all of this cool stuff for you. They fumbled immediately, a media launch. And she sort of felt the point that she makes was, why are you showing me all of this cool stuff where I just want great content? Exactly. But you're fumbling the basics mm -hmm. of, in this case, it's PR. So you're fumbling the basics mm -hmm. of the discipline that I'm giving you my budget to execute yeah. on. And I thought that was a really bit of interesting feedback to us as an agency that yes, all of these new tools are important and exciting and new, but here's somebody in a senior role client side who is like, yes, it is cool, but I've got my own values. I've got my own stuff that I need you guys to do well. Mm. And that's great, but don't forget this other side. Yeah, well. that's why I thought, based on my 27 years of experience, sort of struggle with that traditional model. I thought, the, how do you use generative AI or all these solutions? It should be, a first of all, an internal exercise. What are some of the deadlock in your business model that before you don't, you've never had a, the right solution? This new generation of AI solution could help you address yeah. that. You need to improve that efficiency. And then you can continue with the same price tag with the client. Client didn't have to know yeah. that you're actually using this, right? Mm. But then you actually generate a lot more profit for your organization. It's again, you're absolutely right. But again, from these, there's how transparent should we be with clients that we're using these tools? It's, it's interesting. It's something that we're going to have to hammer out. But you don't, you don't talk to your clients. You can, you can like, kick that back and forth. Mm -hmm. and, and who knows quite where the answer comes out, although I'm sure there is one. But what's interesting about that to me is just think about what we were discussing a few minutes ago, Wang Jiamin and his um, digital uh, techniques. Part of the trick 
is to suddenly have a brainwave about where you apply this technology. And that's where it can be transformative for the business and equally, I'm sure, for the agency, both as a business and as a service provider. And it's difficult to see that there'll ever be a time when that human ingenuity is defunct. Perhaps that's wishful thinking, but I certainly don't see it happening in the very near future. That's kind of where I'm at with it as well, I think. I'm not sceptical of the tool at all. And I have seen opportunities where we can apply and the stuff that I don't necessarily want to spend time doing when I could be doing VA stuff, Mm. for example, and Mm. I can throw at the AI. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, your current model, you don't go to your client and explain to the client how many Apple laptops that you're using, how many PCs that you're using. It's your decision, right? And how much are you giving your salary increment? That's your that that is your business yeah. strategy. That is your business yeah. operation challenges. Clients not gonna be they don't they don't care. You well, according to pitch. Again, that's one of the screen. points that I was making in that mm. maybe some clients in different regions mm. have been having that sort of pushback. Yeah, then, possibly. Yeah, but Jerry, it seems we're all violently agreeing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Bessie, Peter, that's been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking some time out to come sit down and we have this chat. I've loved it. Will you come back and do a follow up when the next book is out or when the next project? Certainly, if you allow us. Always <laughs> delighted, Stephen. It's always great fun doing a great. podcast exactly. with you. Thanks Thank very much you. for having um, us. As I said at the top of the show, we'll put links to social media and, and a link to where people can pick up the book as well. But Thank you. If, People want to get in touch with you. Is there anything you've got coming up that you want to flag up now? Any speaking or events? Where can people see you, Bessie? Mm-hmm. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn and we're working on our next book. We so are. So watch out the space. <laughs> and we have a few speaking engagements coming up, but nothing finalized yet. Okay. So maybe that's something we'll put on LinkedIn. But um, our LinkedIn, uh, we have links to our LinkedIn profiles in the book. And I think you're going to put them in yeah, there. We'll put yeah. them so we're happy to take questions and indeed feedback. People might have comments mm-hmm. or criticism, which we'd love to hear. At any time, the one thing we can guarantee is, if humanly possible, we will reply to you. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thanks again. Thank Fantastic. you so much. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Radical Global Marketing Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it. Join us next time for more insight, best practice case studies, and shared experiences from some of the world's most radical global marketing leaders. <laughs>